0: As Pastor Claire mentioned, my name is Kaylee. I'm one of the junior girl leaders. So excited. Love you guys. So excited to be here um, with you guys tonight to just share on this topic that we've been uh, getting to talk about, about these questions that every high schooler should ask and answer about Christianity. And I got to say, Claire gave me a whopper of a start (laughs) because we are going to talk about the topic, how can you believe that the Bible is true? And this is probably something that if you haven't wrestled with before, you probably will at some point. This is a question that someone that you may know that's not a Christian might ask you one day. And so it's important for us to be able to talk about this in this community. So... Let me start off with a story real quick. Um, When I was in high school, I was good friends with an agnostic and an atheist. Uh, Quick definitions, for those of you who don't know, an agnostic is someone who is on the fence about God, and an atheist is someone who basically denies the existence of God altogether. Um, Both the agnostic and atheist believed that God could not be trusted, and specifically that the Bible could not be trusted. So we made an agreement. My two friends would read a book called The Case for Christ, which is a book by a man named Lee Strobel. Um, He basically went out to disprove the existence of Jesus and ended up becoming a Christian. And so I thought that I would have my friends read that book, and in return, they would have me read a book called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Has anyone ever heard of that book, The God Delusion? some people. So basically, The God Delusion is a book that I think most atheists would probably be the first book that they would run to, because basically in this book, Dawkins is saying that God does not exist, there's there's no proof of him, and that you should not believe in him. So my friends got about halfway through the case for Christ before they put it down and told me this is untrue, and we're not going to read it any further. This book is full of it. There's There's just no good evidence in here. And their assertiveness and their intelligence, it really intimidated me. Uh, When I was in high school, I remember we have AP classes, or some of you guys taking AP classes right now, and then we had another format called IB classes. Have anyone ever heard of those? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, some of you guys have. So basically it's like AP classes, and then there's like IB, so it's like even higher. They were in the IB classes, so they were intimidating to me. And if I was being honest, I believe that the book that they gave me, The God Delusion, would prove the Bible to be untrue. Deep in my heart, I believe that, and so I was too afraid to read the book. And so many of you guys might find yourselves in similar situations. We, although we may not want to admit it, believe that scripture can be proven untrue. We're anxious that the truth of Scripture can be disproven. And so we all eventually come face-to-face with this question, is the Bible true? So that's a bit of a complicated question. And so when people ask if the Bible is true, normally what they probably mean is a very contemporary question, kind of like what Kyle talked about a couple of weeks ago. They're asking, is the Bible absolute truth, and is it without error? The fancy word for that is inerrant. The short answer to that is yes. And I have a quote by a man named Justo L. Gonzalez. He says, the Bible is inerrant, but the same cannot be said for any interpretation of the Bible. The error is not in the Bible, but in its interpreters, who often confuse their own words with the word of God. Now, I realize that that quote might seem like a lot, so let me give you kind of an example to help illustrate this point. So one major argument against the truthfulness of scripture is found in Genesis. So according to Genesis chapter 1, God completed creation in six days. And this leads many creationists to believe that the world is relatively young. It's like around 6,000 years old, more or less. The problem with that is scientists have found fossil evidence that demonstrates that the earth is much older than that. And so someone might look at those two things and say, well, these things don't add up. I don't know how the science adds up to this point of scripture. And so they'll say that's proof that the Bible is not true. But we in turn need to think of context and ask ourselves, does this mean that the Bible is untrue? And so when it comes down to it, it's basically this. If we believe that the only purpose of Genesis chapter one is to tell us that the world was created in six literal days, then there is something untrue happening. But we need to understand, like I mentioned, context. So I have a quote by a man named Dan Kimball, and uh, in in this book he says, Genesis was written to the Israelites after they had lived in a land that worshiped many gods to remind them of who the one true God was. So quick pause. In Exodus, we know that the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, and they lived in a society that worshiped many gods. So after leaving generations of slavery and needing to be reintroduced to who God is, that is why this book was written. Um, it was written to for them of who the one true God was, not to explain the science and details of creation. Genesis was written to tell the Israelites the story of the covenant he made, God made, with their forefather Abraham, not to explain when dinosaurs were around and how to view the fossil records. So that's why we kind of need to understand the context and the purpose of this scripture. You see, what Gonzalez is saying in his quote is that if there is anything untrue about the Bible, it comes from our interpretation of scripture, not scripture itself, Dan Kimball provides the example of this in his description of Genesis. And so this kind of gets to our first point on our card, which is this. We should read the Bible to learn about God, about his character, his relationship with humanity, and his relationship with us. That is the purpose of what scripture is. If we try to insert any other interpretation, we will be disappointed. Hustle El Gonzalez also shares that when you just have text on a page, Text does not err. It is the writers and readers who can err. But text has authority. And so he kind of talks about how this argument can be difficult because if you put the same argument with the Bible, you can also see it with other books. I could technically say that the Twilight books are inerrant or that the Quran is inerrant because when we're talking about text, just the text itself on the page, again, that's just words on a page. It's the interpretation. So then the question comes, how is the authority of the Bible different? And we find that authority in Jesus Christ who is in the Bible. The truth of scripture begins and ends with Jesus. Why? Well, let me illuminate this this idea through a question. If any other part of the Bible was found to have error, would that affect our salvation? If the, if the plagues maybe didn't happen exactly the way that we understand understood them, if Jonah was never actually swallowed by a fish, literally in the literal way that we might read scripture, does that affect our salvation? And what does scripture say about that? So the first um, verse is John three sixteen, which is a verse that we're all that we're all pretty aware of, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 6:23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 14 six says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you see, again, when we talk about our salvation, these verses make it clear that there is truly only one story in scripture that needs to have factually and literally happened. Um, And that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. To disprove this truth, you would have to disprove the existence of Jesus, which is impossible. And I hope that you guys find this comforting, by the way. Disproving Jesus' life on earth is very hard, and most people who say that he did not exist are pretty crazy. So let's look at what scripture says first, just a couple more verses here. Um, Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.26 through 27 says, the mystery hidden for generations but now revealed in his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But we may think to ourselves, okay, that's what scripture says. What about non-biblical sources? Because again, people might come after us with um, people that are not uh, reading the Bible. And so here's a quote from people that uh, kind of shows that. So a man named Larry Hurtado, he says, no one, no one in scholarly circles dealing with ancient Judaism and early Christianity of any religious or non-religious persuasion holds the view that Jesus never existed. You're entitled to your own opinion, but not to your own truth. Which I love that because when we kind of talked about that idea of truth a couple weeks ago, we talked about that idea of my truth. And we should stop saying that because at the end of the day it comes down to opinion. The truth is that he's saying is Jesus walked this earth. Here's another quote by a man named Bart Ehrman. He says, I think the evidence is just so overwhelming that Jesus existed that it's silly to talk about him not existing. And this man is actually a top biblical scholar, and he is actually not a Christian. So even he cannot deny the existence of Jesus. And surprisingly, even Richard Dawkins, as much as he goes to disprove God, he could not even deny the existence of Jesus. So even the most ardent skeptics and opposers of Christianity believe that Jesus Christ walked the earth. And I think it is so kind of God to make it so clear to us that Jesus was real. We don't have to question too much about that. We can just know this is what historically is Jesus did walk the earth. So then you might think, okay, but what about the resurrection? So maybe you're thinking, maybe I can believe that the truth of scripture hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and maybe I can believe that Jesus was a real person who was crucified, but what about his resurrection? And to be quite honest, I think this is where most of us can find it difficult to have faith in the story of God. Most people can get behind differences in interpretations of truth. Most can believe Jesus was a great man who actually existed. Most can believe that Jesus was crucified. But how many can truly believe that Christ rose from the dead? There must be no proof. But I think that there is proof. And so, I'm going to start in I'm going to start biblically. So in So Paul, in 1 Corinthians, mentions how more than 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead. And he also fully acknowledges the weight of what it means if Christ hasn't been raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 17 through 20 says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As I said, even Paul knew the risks of this. And so going back to a scholarly viewpoint, there's a woman named Paula Frederickson who even looks at how the, she acknowledges that the disciples of Jesus saw something. So she says this. I know in their, their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus, they being the apostles. That's what they say, and then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian that they must have seen something. So the significance of that is there. So as a quick recap, we know that the Bible is the story of God's relationship with humanity. Jesus is where God physically meets humanity. He was a real person who was really crucified, and his apostles really believed he resurrected. And both of these points are attested by biblical scholars, many of them who are not Christian. This is all pretty compelling, and yet none of this in my opinion, is the most powerful evidence of the truth of Scripture. This is what the most powerful evidence of Scripture is. Christians, it's you. You are proof, maybe not the proof, maybe not all the proof, but you are proof of the resurrection of Christ. And you might think, how is that possible? Think about it. We are talking about this faith still 2,000 and even longer years later after the death of Jesus, after the death and supposed resurrection of Jesus. We are still talking about this. You individually and together are the most powerful proof of the truth of scripture. You are the most powerful proof that God met humanity through the person of Jesus Christ and that through the resurrection of Christ, we are all saved. And let me clarify that as I speak about this now, for those of you who are maybe on the fence about Jesus, who have not given your life to him, I'm not speaking to you right now. This is for those of us leaders and students who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and who are choosing to change our lives. Now how is it that through the resurrection of Christ we are all saved? How do we see that? It's through one word, testimony. You accepted Christ as your savior, again speaking to Christians here, and you are not the same. You were one way before you accepted Christ, and now you are completely different. Before Christ, this is the miraculous, before Christ, you were bent towards sin, and now you are slowly bending towards God. The story of how you were once a sinner and now are on the path towards Christ is the proof that Jesus really died and was resurrected. Here's an example. You can see this in Paul the Apostle's life. For those of you who may not know, Paul, before he became a Christian, was a murderer of Christians. He did not want them to succeed. He did not believe in them. He had a supernatural encounter with Christ and completely changed his life. And now, most of the books that we read in the New Testament are written by Paul. You can see that story in Pastor Jason's life. Jason has shared his testimony before in that when he was in high school, he wanted nothing to do with God. And he decided to give God one chance, He came to HSM one day. He met my wonderful fiance, Nick, when he was in high school. Nick greeted him with warmth and love, and Jason's life has never been the same since. And you might say, was it just Nick's charm, his kindness, his warmth? (laughs) And that might be some of it, but ultimately it was that Jason saw something in Nick and that something was Christ. You can see it in Haley's life. And how when she, was, um, when she was hiking with her dad, she took a terrible, terrible fall, a traumatizing fall, and was paralyzed from the waist down. And I asked her about it, and she told me that when she was paralyzed, she found Psalm 147, 10 through 11. And it says, The Lord does not find joy in the legs of a man, nor the strength of a horse. The Lord finds delight in those who trust and, and fear him. And she recognized that God showed her that it was okay if she didn't walk again, but that he cares if she is putting her trust in him. And now Haley is miraculously walking, which is incredible. And she, this is part of her testimony now is that God was there and God, and she put her trust in God, and she's still doing that today. You can see this story even in my life, that story that I told you guys about the agnostic and the atheist that I was friends with in high school. I met with one of them about four or five years after we graduated high school. And I remember we were just talking, catching up, and she said something so profound to me. She said, Kaylee, I really admire your faith. And she said it with such warmth. She also said that she recognizes the good teachings of Jesus. She said it with such warmth that I was taken aback She's had a rough life, Um, she's experienced a lot of things that have made her bitter towards anything like faith, but that warmth that I saw shocked me, and the only thing that I could think of was that she saw something, and it must have been Christ. And so, you guys, as you are growing in your faith, as you are walking in your faith, you don't it's, it's sometimes we forget that the life that we live through the scripture that we read is telling a story of if we believe that Christ truly rose from the dead. And so my question to you and my challenge to you is how has your life changed since giving it to Jesus? If it is still the same, I would challenge you to think about if you have truly been transformed by the gospel. And this is, can sometimes be uncomfortable, but the thing that we have to do is, is to have that awareness, and so that brings us to point three, which is this. The word of God is never empty. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing in the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I don't know about you guys, but even as we talk about how maybe all texts can be inerrant, I don't know any... Other text or scripture that would affect me the way this scripture speaks of. It affects us, it forces us to look at ourselves, it forces us to consider and to trust things that are outside of our control. Isaiah 55 says this The word of God does not return void. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Friends, we have to remember this. We don't read God's word to argue a point with a non-believer. In my discussion with my friends that were not Christian... I never successfully debated Christ to them. That is a good sub-point. It is good to have awareness. Again, as we talked about, the context of Genesis 1 was important to understand. But the main thing is that they see the love of Christ that we have in ourselves. And that sometimes means doing hard things. It might mean forgiving someone over and over again for um, a sin that they commit, even though we don't want to do that. might be practicing patience with a friend or a family member, even when we just want to snap at them. These are all the hard work that we have to do, which for us in a microwave society, we often think that we just shouldn't. And so, we don't read God's word to argue a point with a non-believer. We read it to learn about who God is. And as we do that, we can't help but be changed. And as we change, we demonstrate the light of Christ to those around us who do not believe. I have one more quote for you by Houston L. Gonzalez. And he says, reading is always a dialogue between the text and the reader. It is not only the text that speaks and the reader who listens, but also the reader who asks questions of the text and the text responds. To read the Bible is to enter into dialogue with it. As I said, this is a lifelong process for all of us. We're not going to have all the answers right away. Sometimes someone might come at us with, with a hard question, and we might not have the answer immediately, and that is okay. But the point is, is that if we are to enter into dialogue with the Bible, we need to spend that time in it. And so I'm so thankful for your HSM leaders because every week they make these bookmarks. And you guys get them every single week. And if you are here and you, and you think, I don't know where to start in the Bible, I'm overwhelmed, this is hard, I want to encourage you to try to do this reading plan. I even want to encourage you to maybe try to do it with your leaders, with a buddy if you need help with that. Reach out to me too. I would be more than happy to do that with you. The point is, is that we don't have to have all of this knowledge, but we have to start somewhere in understanding that truth of scripture and recognizing its effect on us is where that truth really comes alive. So friends, I want to encourage you to spend that time in scripture and to see that for yourself. And whenever you open it, I want to challenge you to ask God this question, whether or not you are, are you're here with Jesus? Because I believe God even responds if we ask those questions, even if we might not quite be there with him. I want to challenge you that whenever you open it, ask, God, will you show me yourself in these words? And I promise you guys that He will. Can I pray for us? Jesus, we give you thanks. And God, I've been so humbled in this reminder that ultimately I don't have to have all of the answers, God. I remember the the verse where you talk about how um, you use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. We can't just focus on our knowledge. But God, I also know that that time that we spend with you is going to gain us knowledge in the correct direction so that we can support and love others where needed. God, I pray that you would help us to seek after you in scripture as hard as it may be, even if it's just one verse a day, anything like that. God, help us to see that your word is living and active, and help us to respond to it and to continue to bend our lives towards you and away from sin so that other people can see the truth of the scripture in the lives that